that song is just so good because it's, it's a complete and perfect picture really of what this story that we've been exploring now really since September on and off, the book of Ruth is really about, about, about the fact that God alone through Christ is, is what saves us, that, that redemption is this constant sort of thing that we can't do. It's not about me, but it's what God is doing and has done in me. And, and we, we've thrown around a few big theological terms in our past year or so. We've talked about two big words, justification, sanctification. You may remember that. Um, justification is the idea that we are saved, justified once and for all, that we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are purchased with a price and we are justified. Happens once, we are saved. But sanctification is the, the process of becoming holy. And not holy like perfect, but holy like set apart. Right? Sanctification is what happens once we're saved. It's the growing into our relationship with Christ. It's the process of maturing and growing in Christ. And Ruth, while it's a story of redemption, right, the story of a singular sort of redemptive act, it's the invitation to the process of constantly being kind of, uh, constantly growing into that salvation, maturing. And I was reminded last night, very kind of in a stark way, that I am as, as much as anybody full of real mistakes and in constant need of forgiveness. I, my son, my eight-year-old, he's not here so I can tell this story, he, uh, he plays basketball, and he, he does a lot of things, but he plays basketball and plays a, a lot of it, and he, not because he's good, but just because he likes to. And uh, we had a tournament, we had actually five games yesterday, and they're there two this morning, and so we had a tournament, and, and he plays with this other team, but I coach one of his teams, right, and a bunch of kids that we play football and baseball with, and I somehow get to coach those kids, and we had a game last night at 7 o'clock, a late game, and uh, so we had already played, he had already played four games, and we had the 7 o'clock game, and man, we were terrible, I mean, terrible, and I, I mean, it was like, at 30 to 4 or whatever at halftime, I thought, this is, this is it, so, and I, I had had it, and I laid into these kids, and, and you know, here's the deal, is that I'm a bit of a basketball superstar, I don't know if I've told you this story, but in high school, like, in high school, I, uh, I did. I played my fair share. Still got it. I was, you know, pushing 40. Still got it. But I had a, a glorious moment in high school when I was a sophomore. I think I told the story a while ago. But uh, I had a glorious moment. I, mean, I grew up in Austin, and, and uh, I was playing summer league, kind of AAU, all-star basketball in the summer. And we played against this guy uh, by the name of Ray Jackson. He played for LBJ High School in Austin. And now, Ray, for those of you that are really old, are going to remember these names, all right? Because in 1991, Michigan recruited the, the greatest freshman class in the history of basketball, right? Jalen Rose, Juwan Howard, Chris Weber, Jimmy King, and a guy by the name of Ray Jackson. Well, that summer, Ray was a couple years older than I was. I was a sophomore. He was graduating, and he'd already signed his letter of intent to go play with Michigan. That summer, we had to play Ray's summer league team. Now, when Ray played basketball, it was a full event. I mean full event. The gym was filled. I remember playing in front of, or being there and seeing him in front of college, all these college coaches. All these, we, we had to play him in the summer league game. Packed gym. I mean, people standing in the doorways, and, and I was just a sophomore on this team, and we had to play Ray's team. And, and, and so, anyway, long story short, we get there, and, and, and our coach at the time was like, Hey, we're getting ready. He's like, He's like, Prater, you're going to have to guard Ray. And I was like, I'm sorry? And he's like, No, you're going to guard, guard Ray. You just got to kind of get on him, got to stick with him, right? And uh, he's about 6'6", six, six, and he was just incredibly athletic, and I was not, and I was not, both, either of those things. And and then I was like, all right, okay, that's great. You know, and I wasn't a terrible basketball player. I was just young, and he was great, and I was not. And so, and so I remember going out to the, the circle to start, and I shook his hand, called him Mr. Jackson, you know, and all that kind of deal. <laughs> and I was like, you know, hey, we're just summer league, a lot of fun, just playing around, right, you know. And he kind of laughed a little bit, and I was, you know, whatever. And so we went on, he played the first half. He scored 44 points in the first half, 21 dunks. 20 
one of those 44 points. That means he made a couple of free throws because I probably fouled him. But the one I remember, right, at halftime when he went out with 44, was he, he crossed over, came in the lane, and he dunked it so hard. And I looked up, and the ball came out of the net, hit me in the nose. And I fell down, and he landed straddling me like this. I'm laying on the ground. You ever get hit in the nose? Eyes watering, you know, all you can't see anything. He literally took the ball, dropped it on my chest, stepped over, and just walked down the floor. I was laying there humiliated, sobbing, right? Just so, yeah, I mean, there's probably 5,000 people packed in this little, little gym. So game's over, and he only played half, and, you know, I, I didn't even play. The, you know, so I get in the car with my dad, and uh, my dad's, you know, he's just, he was an awesome dude, but he, he just, he wasn't a man of words, right? So he was like, you want to talk about it? I go, no. And he goes, you want to get a burger? I was like, yes. And we didn't talk the whole time. We just went and ate. We sat there and had a burger just sort of looking at the floor, you know. But, uh, and, and so I was a bit of a superstar. So I, that comes through in my coaching, right? I demand excellence out of my eight-year-olds. And so, man, I was railing these kids, right? And, and I, you know, I was just effort. I, mean, I was going through the whole thing. and we had all this, So we get to the end, and we got drilled. And we were walking back to the car. And uh, Cooper, sad. I mean, sad. And I said, we get in the car, I go, what's wrong? And he goes, you didn't give me any good sportsmanship. And I thought, what? That doesn't make any sense. First time using that word right, but I didn't say it. I was like, he's like, you didn't give me any good sportsmanship. And I said, what? Now, now at this point in time, he's sobbing, right? Because he's got a little tender heart. And I said, uh, I go, what do you mean? He goes, you didn't tell me I did anything good. And of course, the dad in me was like, what a loser. I mean, I am a horrible human. And uh, so then we're driving the car, and I'm trying to explain, oh, you know, and, but all night last night, I just kept going, man, my life is a life that is in constant need of redemption. Like, we just make mistakes. And that was a huge mistake to not, you know, validate some of the things that these kids were doing great in the midst of just being, you know, drummed. So as I think about this song, like, and I think about redemption, I'm, I'm thinking about those things that sometimes we think our relationship with Christ is this, this one moment, and then I'm sort of on my own after that. But the reality of following Christ is this process of being made holy and being sanctified. And being made holy is a process of, of knowing and growing into our relationship with Christ. Now, Ruth is a story of redemption. And it's where the story begins for us. It's where the story begins for, for you and for me. And the process of now maturing and growing in that is what we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks as we talk about how we live as the church. So what we've been exploring since September is this incredible love story. This story of, of, of perfect redemption. And it's a foreshadow of all that Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's a powerful little tale. And so if you haven't been with us, um, I'm not going to go through a full recap, but I'm just going to catch up to speed where we are because it's a really cool thing. Because the first chapter of Ruth is sort of this unfolding, this family flees Bethlehem because of a a famine and they find themselves in Moab, which was kind of a a wicked land because it was created from the descendants of of Lot, family of incest. And and they worshiped not Yahweh, they worshiped a God named Chemosh. And and they had fled to Moab, this family, this Naomi and her husband and her two sons, and, and tragedy struck their lives and the father dies and the sons die and Naomi's left a widow with these two Moabite um, kind of daughters-in-law and she decides that she has to return home when she hears the famine is lifted and, and she's got this incredible relationship with this, this woman, this one daughter-in-law named Ruth and, and the, that daughter-in-law decides to go back with her even you know, against Be- uh, Naomi's wishes and, and you get this sense in chapter 1 that there's this sort of this bitter providence that God is at work and he's moving but life is difficult and hard and Naomi has walked through incredible pain and she is broken and she is bitter and she is mad at God. I mean mad at God. In fact, she wants her name changed from pleasant and lovely to bitter. That's what she declares. 
Chapter 1 kind of ends with a little bit of a glimmer of hope. This bitterness is, is sort of shifting because it turns out that Naomi's not totally alone. But as they go back to Bethlehem, God has looked at the famine. There's this man by the name of Boaz who's a man of standing, and he happens to be related to her. And that's how chapter 1 ends. And chapter 2 kind of begins with this sort of a little bit of this glimmer of hope, right? This guy named Boaz is on our family, and he's a man of standing. And that's how chapter 1 ends. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth looking at Naomi going, I- I've got to do something for us. Like, we can't just sit here and die. We are living in abject poverty. We have nothing, no one to take care of us. Being a widow in, those ti- in that time period was, a, it was almost somewhat of a death sentence, sadly. But she says, I've got to do something. So she asks permission to go out to the fields because the barley harvest is happening and just see if she can't find some grain that was thrown on the floor. And uh, so Ruth, and Naomi says, sure. So Ruth goes out to a field, and she starts talking to the, land, the guy that's kind of running it, the manager there. And, and he says, sure, you can glean. And gleaning is the process of going on the edges of the field and just picking up the trash, right? The trash grain, the stuff that nobody wanted or dropped, and scooping it up and hoping to get a day's worth. And, and the field that she finds herself in, that she was given permission to work, just happens to be, because God is at work in all this, happens to be the field of this guy named Boaz. And as she's gleaning and working, Boaz comes up and he says, who is that? And his foreman kind of says, well, this is Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she's working like crazy hard. And Boaz says, man, I've heard about her. She's a woman of incredible integrity. And he begins to bless her. And he says, here, come and drink from this water and come and have this and eat. And and because of this incredible blessing and stay with my servant girls, and all of a sudden Ruth is finding incredible favor with this guy named Boaz. And you get the sense that something's happening here. And he even invites her to stay through the entire harvest season. Chapter 2 ends with hope. It ends with this sort of renewed hope. Naomi's excited because Ruth has this new sort of lease on life. I've got an opportunity. She's bringing home a ton of grain. Boaz is blessing her like crazy. And chapter 2 sort of ends that way. Well, chapter 3 is sort of this kind of crazy elaborate plan where you get the sense that something's happening between Boaz and Ruth. And so Naomi wants to capitalize on it. She says, look, Boaz is this incredible man. You should actually go to him. And they develop this kind of crazy plan where it seems crazy to us where Ruth would go to the threshing floor and as Boaz falls asleep after having a a night of celebration, she would uncover his feet and the hope is is that Boaz, when he woke up, would kind of tell her that this is what I'm going to do and he would basically invite her in to enter into a marriage covenant with him. That's what's happening. And they come to this plan and that's exactly what Ruth does and she lays herself at Boaz's feet and he wakes up and he says, who is this? And she says, it's your servant, Ruth. She says, cover me with your wings. Basically, cover me with your garment, right? Show me that you will protect me. I want to be yours. In other words, saying, I want to enter into this, this marriage. And it was a deep covenant, similar to what God had taken with Israel. We talked about all that symbolism in the past few weeks. And Boaz says, you are an incredible woman. And you can just sense the sort of love that's happening here. You're an incredible woman. He said, but there's a problem. The problem is, is that while I can do that, because I'm related to you and I can, I can step in and I can redeem your family, because as a widow without a, a male heir, your family was destined to end. And he said, while I can do that and I can marry you and I can redeem your family, there's actually somebody that's related to both of us, to Naomi, that's closer than I am, and he gets the first right to do that. Because Boaz is this incredible man of standing. So he says, but listen, don't, don't freak out, right? Don't, don't worry. I will take care of this. And I will not let this matter go unsolved. So the next morning he gets up and he sends Ruth home without ever entering into any impropriety or any kind of thing that would be seen as, as wrong. It just perfectly pure in the, that evening, right? And he gets up in the morning, he sends her home, and he goes to the gate. 
And he waits at the city gate where all business is conducted. And this, this relative, this guy that's closer to Naomi than Boaz comes by. And so uh, Boaz gets him and he gets ten elders and they sit down and he says, listen, we need to take care of something. And here's the deal. You are the closest kinsman redeemer to Naomi's family. And you know that when they left, Elimelech, her husband, died. And Naomi has this little piece of land and she has to sell it because she's so poor. But because you're the closest, you have the right to buy that land. And he says, the unnamed kinsman redeemer says, yeah, well, I'll buy that land. And Boaz says, but when you do, now listen, I just want to tell you the full story. Because when you do, you also acquire with the land, you acquire the dead man's widow and her daughter-in-law. Just part of the deal. You get, and your part of your responsibility is that you then have to marry the daughter-in-law and carry on the family name. Just part of Old Testament law and history. So this unnamed kinsman redeemer says, well, I don't know about that, right? That's a lot more than I bargained for because now I, I got, maybe he has his own family or he's going to threaten his own estate and he's just like, ah, that's the, I got, she's a Moabite, like, ugh, uh, no, I can't, you do it. And Boaz says, you sure? He's like, yeah, he's like, okay, great. So right there, Boaz like, okay, everybody, don't move. And he looks at all of the 10 elders and says, don't move. Here's the deal. Right now, everybody witness that I am buying this land, right, from Naomi. And as part of that, I'm acquiring Ruth the Moabitess as my wife. Basically saying, and we're going to be married right here, right now. And in order to make this happen, I'm going to take my, or uh, the unnamed kinsman redeemer takes off his shoe and he gives it to Boaz. Boaz says, thanks for the shoe. Apparently this is official. And he gives it back apparently and then everything's done. And now Boaz is super excited. He launches into this incredible speech where he's like, I'm the most blessed man in the world. Not only do I have this incredible family, but I've got this amazing woman, and she's now my wife. And then the elders say, you are so blessed. May your family and your offspring bless this entire nation. And everybody's giddy and happy. Right? And then chapter 4, where we are and where we're going to wrap up today, ends with this sort of incredible celebration. So if you've got this, Ruth, all that to get to this last part, Ruth chapter 4, we are going to be right in verse 13. And we're going to carry this story to completion this morning. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and all that kind of history to get us to a place where we say, you are absolutely amazing. And God, the Old Testament is not just antiquated stories that don't seem to apply to us today. The Old Testament is the complete and beginning part of the redemptive story of, of us. That God it is a foreshadow of what's to come through Jesus Christ. And that Lord, coupled together with the New Testament, Scripture is your complete and perfect redemptive history. And God, we don't take it lightly. And so as we look at these last few verses in Ruth, it's not some story from years ago. It is my story. It is our story. God, a foreshadow of what you would do on the cross. That you would redeem us and set us for life that trusted you. Lord, take, a, take our hearts and prepare them to meet with you. Take just a moment right where you sit and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Maybe something you needed to hear. Maybe what he's doing in your heart. Just Ask God to do something in you this morning. Lord, we pray uh, that you would move in us. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you. Be in the habit of praying for people around you. Pray for someone else this morning. Lord, be glorified in your word. We know that it's uh, living and active. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. So, God, teach our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for all that, to get us right here, Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. <clears throat> so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
And then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So this is how our story ends. Ruth takes for, or, or Boaz takes for himself Ruth as his wife. And this little love story that began that day when Boaz walked up and saw that sweaty, poor foreigner working in his field, that little love story kind of comes to conclusion with Boaz and Ruth entering into this deepest of marriage covenants as a kind of picture of what God entered into with Israel, as we've talked about. And he takes her as his wife. And for the first time, they are intimate, and Ruth is able to conceive. Now, you got to remember, back in Moab, when Ruth was married to Elimelech's son, for over a decade, they were childless, right? Which is a big deal. But we see here through these words that God enabled her, that God is the very author of life, and that God enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So we see God, the author of life, being a God of blessing. And the women, right? Naomi was alone in chapter 2, and she was bitter and angry, and everyone was staring at her. But now these women have said to her, the women in the village in Bethlehem come to her, and they say, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven Son. So the women gather around Naomi, and they begin to heap praise and blessing upon her by saying, listen, look at what has happened to your life, that you were bitter and broken, yet God has now given you this incredible blessing, this son. He has given you a son, a redeemer. He has not forgotten you. And your daughter-in-law, who loves you, right, who's a foreigner from Moab, who loves you, is better than seven sons, which is kind of lost on us. But if you look at 1 Samuel and you look at the book of Job, the idea of seven sons was the picture of a perfect family in Scripture. Numbers are really important in the Bible. Seven's a number of perfection. And when you look at, at, at Job, if you ever read the book of Job, and Job was like crazy heartache and all those kind of things, at the end of the book, God blesses Job and gives him seven sons. For Samuel's kind of a similar picture. God blesses, and it's a picture of a perfect spiritual family. And, and the women say, listen, and this is not something we take lightly, better than seven sons, better than a perfect spiritual family, is this incredible woman that God has put in your life. She's, a, she's from Moab, right? She converted to Judaism at the very end of chapter, or the beginning, kind of middle of chapter one we saw, and she's a different person, but she's a foreigner who everybody looked down upon, and now she is better. Her love is better than the entire perfect family picture in Scripture. And all these women in Bethlehem recognize it. They say, this woman is incredible, and she has blessed you more than seven sons. Now, this next picture of Naomi, our last picture of Naomi, is a, is a little bit weird. But you've got to understand culturally, I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture. This is what it says. Then Naomi took the child, this is her, her grandson, and she laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him 
Obed. Now, this is kind of odd because in our culture, you know, the grandmother takes the child, puts him in her lap, and the people don't gather around and say, look, you've got a baby, and that's your baby. It's your son. And then all the women there say, we're going to name him, right? That's not how that works. We labor. I mean, we thought of our kids' names. We're six months out, and we were arguing about this, and I knew that girl in high school, and she was shady, and we're not naming our daughter like that, and all those kind of things. And that reminds me of this, and this rhymes with this, and I don't like that, and, you know, and so we did all that. We didn't let people come in our lives and go, you know what, I'm going to name your kid. I'm going to name your kid Chavez, whatever, you know. But this is a weird deal. But here's what's happening. Naomi is the centerpiece, right? She's the one that God has taken from absolute complete bitterness to blessing and fulfillment. Ruth, while the book is named about her, is as equal a part of this story as Naomi. So Ruth is able to conceive and give birth to this son. And Naomi takes this child, puts him in her lap, and she cares for him. Now, any of you that have had children know exactly what this moment is, right? If you've had a child, and this isn't to exclude those of you that haven't, But those of you that have know exactly what this is. It's that moment where you're sitting there at home and your infant, one or two or three months or whatever, is laying there, not spitting up, not pooping on you, none of those things, not screaming, not 13 and sassy, none of those things. That moment where you smell them and they smell like a baby and their little cheek is up against yours and you think, how am I this blessed? That one moment, it doesn't last, right? And they come and go. But that one moment... Where you're rubbing their back and they're sound asleep, right? That's what Naomi's doing. I imagine her kind of in this bound up wooden chair that they made by hand. And she's sitting there with this baby in her lap and she's just rubbing his back. And she's reflecting on God's blessing. This is a woman who, when I say life has been hard, is an understatement. She watched her husband die, watched both of her sons die, buried all three of them. Lost one of her daughters-in-law that returned back to Moab. And has walked through hardship upon hardship of poverty and fear for years. Only to see God begin to slowly turn her life around. Begin to slowly give glimmer of hope. And now fulfill that in blessing. And guess what? It doesn't take away any of those other hurts. Those are real and they still exist. But at that moment, as she's caring for this son that she never dreamed she would have. It's more than a child. It is God's promise to not leave her nor forsake her. Because in those days, having someone to carry on your family name was everything. Without this little child of promise, her family ended with her. That's the truth. Yet now laying in her lap is this promise of blessing. And the women say she has a son. But what they're not saying is that's really her physical child. They're saying you have a redeemer. You have someone that won't let your family die. And you are so blessed and we are going to all name him Obed. And in a book where names mean everything, right, Obed means worshiper of God. I mean, and this story is incredible. And then it comes to this sort of incredible conclusion with the genealogy, which most of us skip. When we read genealogies in scripture, they make us crazy because we can't pronounce all the names, right? Matthew and Luke have in the book of Matthew, which we're going to talk about in a second, is 40 names long. And I went through it before we started this, and I literally could only say correctly 17 of the 40 names. The rest I just made up, right? Because we look at these things and we say, why, why, why? But I promise you, these little six six or seven lines at the end of this chapter are more important than anything else in this entire book. They are the point of the story. And listen to how it goes. So we named him Obed. We're going to name your child for you. Like it. Worshiper of God. He was the father of Jesse, right? And Jesse was the father of David. 
And they basically listed out the lineage with Perez and Hezron and Ram and Aminadab and Nashon all the way down to Boaz, right? That's our main character, our hero, our guy, this man of standing. Boaz, father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history, right? But what's significant about David? David is where the line of Christ comes from. The prophecy was that the Messiah would come from the line of David. That Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, right, being the glorious Boaz, is from the line of David. Now, if you remember, if you were here back September 15th, I opened up this whole thing by talking about Matthew's genealogy. I'm going to revisit it for a second because I think it's important. Matthew has 40 names included in his genealogy, right? The genealogy is how we get to Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's setting it all up for the birth of Christ. He's saying we started here. And we get to Jesus. But Matthew's genealogy is a little bit different. It's not a bloodline. It doesn't trace. He's doing something really important. In that genealogy, he names four women. Just four out of all of that. He names four women. He names a woman named Tamar, right, who was a bit of a shady character. And as uh, Angie Gavin reminds me, got a little bit of a bad rap, right? We talked about that. But she's a bit of a shady character. She enticed her father-in-law, sleeping with her by dressing like a prostitute. She could carry on her family line. But she did it with noble purposes. I get that. It was good. But, but she's a little bit shady, right? All right? And then we've got uh, Bathsheba. Her name's in there. And Bathsheba was the infamous kind of woman who David saw bathing on the roof. King David, while he was, while all the kings were out at war, David saw this woman bathing on the roof and he decided he had to have her. And he has his guys go and gets her and he, he ends up conceiving with her and he has her husband killed and this is horrible scenario, right? But Bathsheba is mentioned in the lineage, the, lineage, the line of Christ. Then there's a, a woman named Rahab. Rahab, we remember from Jericho. She was a prostitute. She hid the spies, right? She's not even an Israelite. Yet she was the only one that was spared when the walls of Jericho fell. And then you have Ruth. Ruth is in there. The Moabitess. Ruth the foreigner that worshipped the God of Chemosh. That God's life, God sort of changed midway through. You got these kind of shady characters. So why prostitutes and, and, and shady women? And then somebody actually came up to me after we did that in September. And they said, you actually missed one. The last line of the genealogy of Jesus says, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. And technically, that's exactly right. Mary's in there. So what's Mary's story? Mary's a teenager from a tiny little rural dusty town who married a carpenter. God showed up in the middle of the night and told her that she was going to have a son as a virgin. Husband didn't believe her at first, thought she was unfaithful, but an angel Lord appeared to him and said, no, she is a virgin and she is going to have the son. He's going to be the savior and we're going to name Jesus Emmanuel. They both trusted in God, but everybody around them didn't believe. For most of Mary's life, she was called a sinful liar. And they believed that she slept around. And she was a teenager, probably 12, all the way up to 14 or 15, somewhere in that window. So why these women in the genealogy of the ultimate redeemer? Why Tamar? Why Rahab? Why Bathsheba, Ruth, and this teenage throwaway named Mary? Now you begin to understand why the story of Ruth is so incredible. You see, the story of redemption See, Matthew was written for a bunch of people that felt like they were pretty righteous and they weren't quite as bad as everybody else and all the real sinners. It was written for a group of people that believed, yeah, we make some mistakes, but not like all those other people. And so what Matthew does is he says, oh yeah, you want to know where Jesus came from? He came from a line of broken foreigners and prostitutes and teenage throwaways. And he redeemed them all. That's the call of Christ. When I told you that Ruth was our story, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You and I, we are broken. We are throwaways, we are full of sin and garbage. Yet the ultimate redeemer, Jesus, takes us as his bride, 
right? And he redeems us and he gives us life. Ruth is your story. It's my story. We are foreigners. We are broken. We have chosen to worship wrong gods and give our lives to false idols. We have chosen ourselves time and time again. We have yelled at God, called him names, and changed our own name in the process. Yet God in his faithful picture will never leave us nor forsake us and is calling us into a relationship with him. He is the only redeemer. Ruth was not going to be able to redeem herself. Nothing she was going to do was going to be able to buy her life out of what she had. It had to be Boaz. Boaz had to take the action. Boaz had to do the work. Jesus had to take the action. Jesus had to do the work. You cannot earn your way to favor with God. The story is a story of redemption. It's really the story of the church. Because as Boaz takes Ruth as his bride, right? He takes her broken and defiled and all that she is as a Moabitess. And he says, I love you. And I'm going to use you. And God uses her to bring about the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. And then he names her some 1,200 years later as part of the very reason and line of the Messiah. The church as we exist, is a broken disaster. Nobody likes it when I say that, but it's just true. I mean, look around you. I mean, we are just people that are trying the best we can to show bad sportsmanship to our kids. I mean, we make mistakes. We make huge ones, small ones, big ones, everything in between. We choose ourselves over God every single day. Yet we are gathered by the ultimate Redeemer to say, I'm going to use you. The church, I will not only use you, I will marry you. You will become my bride. I will call you beloved. I will call you beautiful. I will call you lovely. And I will use you to demonstrate my love to the world. Are you kidding me? That's how God demonstrates his love to the world, through women like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba. Teenage girls like Mary. And God of infinite kind of amazement that could use the stars and ride it across the skies chooses to take this group of messed up people and say, I will buy you first and then I will use you to show the world that I'm a God of redemption. And the church becomes the instrument of that. The next two weeks, we're going to be unfolding a picture of the church. All right, we're in a transition time as a church, an exciting time. We're look, as you can tell, we're looking for more space. We're about to, to kind of move into a new phase in our life. We've got our first group of elders that we're going to appoint and pray over. The next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the church and stepping into this new part of our life, and I'm really excited about it. But this is the perfect segue for that because this becomes the picture of who we are, a reflection of the redeemed. Look, we're not a huddle together people that are really proud of our own self-righteousness that figure out we got it all together. Half of you fought with your wife on the way here. Just don't talk about it. The reality is some of the things we engaged in last night, we're not proud to be standing here for. We are a messed up, broken group of people that are in need of deeper, desperate redemption. And God is a God who redeems and then is constantly in the process of making us more like him. And we reflect those broken lives redeemed by the ultimate, perfect, glorious Boaz to the world. That's what we are. We're not called to say anything other than the truth. And that is, we can't do it without Jesus. Ruth couldn't do it without Boaz. The next two weeks, next week we're going to be looking at, what is the picture of the church? Why does it exist? What are we called to do and be? The week after that we're going to talk about leadership and what God's picture is for his bride. As we explore this phase in our life together. I love this book. I pray that every time you come across it, you will never, ever see it the same way again. But that's my hope with all of Scripture, that you fall in love with it. I am a lover of God's Word. 
but I want you to fall in love with this stuff because it is your story. Part of what we do every month is we take a few moments and just share needs together. It's part of being the church. It's part of gathering together saying, God, I want to be open and be prayed for and declare my praises to you. And we, what we do is we just sort of shout them out. <clears throat> I jot them down and we pray for them together. And I know that for some of you here for the first time, it seems a little weird. Maybe you never did that in church or whatever, but that's okay. It's, it's, we're okay with being a little odd. I mean, if you've got something going on in your life you'd like us to pray for, you just sort of holler them out and I'll jot them down. And, and, and you don't have to. We're not going to call on you if you're back there getting really antsy. Like, I, we won't do that, I promise. So you can just sit there and, and take it in. But if you've got something, I'm going to jot a few of these things down for us. And uh, we're going to pray over them as, as part of celebrating who God is in the redemptive work of his church and his people. And really part of the church is not just showing up here and hoping Treb doesn't, isn't boring and the music is something I like. Part of church is saying, I am here to know and be known. That I want to be part of something bigger than myself. And the body is we're connected. I mean, sometimes we have to share those things and ask for prayer and celebrate those moments that we've seen God at work.